0: Good morning. morning. Trust everyone had a good good night's sleep and a good breakfast. It's a privilege to be with you here again this morning to open God's Word and to consider the Lord's work in Peter's life. Just grab it school here. You can open your Bibles to Mark chapter eight. And we're going to be focusing this morning on Mark chapter eight, verses thirty-four through thirty eight. But I'd also like us to include is that too this is this all right? I'll just back it up a little bit. There we go. I'd also like us to include verses uh, twenty seven to thirty three. So if you'll follow along with me, I'll read Mark eight, twenty seven through thirty eight. It says, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to follow after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, I thank you for this passage. Lord, I thank you for these words. Thank you, Lord, for how they penetrate to the depths of our desires as they are in our fallen nature. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us from your word this morning, that you would make it clear its um, purpose and significance for our lives as disciples, as well as the unique significance that it had for Peter. Lord, we thank you that it's here. I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in each heart to illumine the word and also to make clear to them its application. Thank you for being a loving shepherd and for calling us and challenging us us with these things. Lord, I pray for your help to speak so that in all things you might be glorified. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Bible as a whole reveals that sin has affected and corrupted the entirety of the human race, both individually and as a whole. Romans 3, Paul writes in verse 10, It is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is... None who understands, none who seeks for God. Romans three twenty three, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It is universal. And that universality of sin is marked by death, which Isaiah calls a covering and a veil spread over the whole human race in Isaiah twenty five. Paul writes in Romans five Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. Sin is universal. But it, it and it also affects and saturates each individual person. The whole of the person is affected by sin, influenced by it, and corrupted. This is a doctrine of total depravity. Total depravity. Total depravity doesn't mean that every person is utterly evil. It's not what it teaches. But it does mean that the totality of our person has been affected by sin. Our minds, our wills, our emotional life, our desires, and even our physical bodies. It has tainted us to the core. And at the core lies this common pulse at the root of sin, and that is allegiance to self. Another word for this is pride. Allegiance to self. In the delusion of sin, when even our first parents entered into sin, it, they started to see the world, and I think we see the world, with me at the center of the world. This is not hard to convince parents of when they have young children. We're born with this innate impulse and presupposition to our thinking And at a young age we throw tantrums to get the world to do what we want, right? It could be something very small. But if the world around me is not conforming to what I want, then that's a problem because I'm at the center after all. And don't they know that they exist for me? It can be so subtle, but so consistent and pervasive. There's a man in our church who has struggled with addiction and is slated to alcohol for years. And so many people over the years have reached out to him. Christian people with the gospel, with an abundance of truth. He's gone through one marriage, one family. His kids and wife are alienated from him. And he's in a second marriage with a lady in our church and... He has all kinds of blessings in his life. A good job, nice house, a farm. He's smart. Over and over we have said to him, you need to forsake alcohol. Can't you see what it's done to your life? Ruined these past relationships. He understands the gospel, the content of the gospel. But at the end of the day, when it comes to the decision to take another drink, it is all about him. He couldn't care less about anyone else or how it affects anyone. It's all about Him and what He wants. You can think of the Garden of Eden. Satan puts the temptation in Eve's mind, doubting the goodness of God. He says, For God knows that the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. And then the woman did some reasoning. It says in verse 6, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it will taste good and satisfy me. That it was a delight to the eyes, it pleases me to look at this. And that the tree was desirable to make one wise, I'll be wiser than I am now. And all of this apart from God, right? It says she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave to her husband and he ate. And I think the same kind of thinking is there. I know what God has said, but I'm looking at this and it's going to benefit me. It's going to benefit me. And I'll have it if it benefits me, even if it means parting with God. This is the fundamental dynamic of every sin. Every time we are tempted, it's the same dynamic. Willing to break with God in obedience and trust in God because I have found something better for old number one. Sin has affected this in our minds and in our thinking. We have this pulse in our desires, an innate love for self, an allegiance for self. And sin has warped our minds to believe that I am actually the center of everything. And that's wrong. It's also kind of stupid. I tell our teens all the time in youth group, sin makes you stupid. It does. That makes no sense. How can I be the center of everything? Right? Have I created it? Do I order it? Was I there at the beginning? Will I be there at the end? Am I accountable for it all? Even in my own person, right? Am I calling the shots on the thousands of operations happening right now in my body that make me alive? Just think of it, right? All the systems of our body and all the mechanisms of the cells and all the synapses in my brain and all the electricity that's in there. I don't don't know anything about any of that stuff, and I certainly don't control it. I am a totally dependent creature. Very finite. It makes no sense to think of myself as a center of reality. But whoever created me that way, whoever designed everything, and whoever holds together the universe and put in place the glorious laws of physics that cause this immense unfathomable universe to run like clockwork, he would be a good candidate to be at the center, right? And that's God. God is at the center, but sin has so deranged us that we think it's us. Sin has left us with an innate allegiance to self. That's why Adam and Eve, that's what they inherited when they sinned. That is why Adam immediately blamed Eve for his sin. That is why Eve blamed the serpent for her sin. This lurks behind every lie that we speak, which typically is motivated to protect ourselves or benefit ourselves. Self-allegiance fueled David's heart as he committed adultery with Bathsheba without thinking of her or her husband or his other wives or his children or the nation of Israel, and especially without thinking of God. And when Nathan comes to confront him, he says uh, to him on behalf of God, Sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me, says God to David. He despised all those other people, but ultimately it was a despising of God. This relates to self-preservation motives, self-protection, self-aggrandizement, self-esteem, self-love, all revolve around this innate self-allegiance that resulted from rebellion against God. This is what Jesus takes aim at in Mark 8. 34 to 38. I think what Jesus says here takes aim at that impulse of the human heart. And He calls us to follow Him with this in mind. It's a summons to the crowd, you'll see in verse 34, with His disciples. You'll notice also that there are implications for salvation in verse 35. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. So This is not just a call to deeper commitment, although it is. This involves the nature of saving faith. We cannot follow Jesus. We cannot trust Him the way that He requires unless we deal with this issue of self-allegiance. That's what He takes aim at In this passage, like Luke five, this passage also has a specific purpose for Peter. I think we'll see that as we look at the immediate context and then finish the passage and then consider how it uh, would have been remembered by Peter. Uh, Just as an aside, church tradition says that Mark's gospel was written uh, based mostly on the memory of Peter. And so we can imagine that as as Peter is conveying this event to Mark, that he's remembering it in in an inspired and sanctified way. And I think also has in mind um, the specific way that the Lord used this in his own life. And we'll look at that in a moment. We left off in Luke 5. The first stage of Jesus' public ministry. And I think it's uh, worth considering for a moment what has transpired up until this point here. In other words, what has Peter experienced with Jesus between the great catch of fish in Luke 5 up to this very critical juncture in Mark 8? Many of the same things have been happening that we talked about yesterday. Jesus is still putting his power on display in various miracles, his popularity is increasing. Crowds are flocking to him. The animosity from the Pharisees is also increasing because he had healed repeatedly on the Sabbath. Amongst other things, he, when he healed the paralytic, he claimed authority to forgive sins. He claimed authority over the Sabbath. Peter had also been with him in that call to Matthew Levi and the Dining with Sinners. He had been with Christ when he raised a couple of people from the dead. During the interval here, Peter had been named as one of the 12 apostles. During the interval here, Peter had walked on water. He had seen Jesus multiply food to feed 5,000 people. And we see Peter's faith in particular increasing in Christ. His confidence is growing. Jesus at one point endowed his apostles with the same authority and power he had, so they themselves went out and healed and preached the kingdom and experienced people's response. So Peter is growing in confidence as a disciple and now an apostle of Christ and growing in his faith. Turn over with me to John chapter 6. This is the bread of life Discourse from Christ in John 6. It comes right on the heels of feeding the 5,000. The crowds experience this and he leaves, uh, he leaves them the next day. They want more miraculous food, wouldn't you? They want to make him king, wouldn't you? This is good for the nation of Israel, right? If he can make miraculous bread, that's going to have a huge effect on our economy, right? Right? And so they seek Him for this bread. And if you know, just summarizing John 6, Jesus knows that they come for the wrong reason. They don't come for Him. They come for the bread. They don't understand why He's here in His first coming to offer Himself on behalf of the nation to atone for their sin. They don't understand that. He knows this. And so He confronts that by describing what they truly need. John six thirty five, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life, He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Tremendous promise pointing to Christ. On that side of the cross, they have no idea what he's talking about. The conversation continues, and Jesus makes it more extreme. Look at verse 51. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. We know exactly what he's talking about. But they did not. Verse 52. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, just put yourself in the shoes of these first century Jews. They don't even eat pork. Right? Right? This is drastic language. It might sound familiar to you, right? Because we know John's gospel. But for them, it was offensive. The net result is that many disciples began to withdraw. Verse 66. It says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? And here's the point for our study on Peter. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So that's where Peter's at in his faith. That's what he's experienced with Christ leading up to this point in Mark 8. And that's where his faith is at with Christ. And if you had experienced what he had experienced, I think you would have been convinced as well. This is what begins the passage in Mark 8. Who do people say that I am? They tell him John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And then he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Now this is immediately met with a commendation from Jesus, not mentioned in Mark, but mentioned in Matthew. Matthew 16 is the parallel passage. You can turn there if you'd like. Matthew 16, 16, Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is spot on. This is known as Peter's great confession. This is the clearest confession of faith thus far in the ministry of Jesus from any of his disciples. They've come to know this and they believe it already. And I think when Peter says this, I think it comes after what he had said in John 6, a very similar confession. But I think, Jesus' commendation of this comes because when Peter says it, it is confident and clear without any reservation. We have come to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responds with this exclamation in Matthew sixteen seventeen. Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church." and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. right? So we're back to this critical name for Peter. You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now, it's for another sermon, but there are three different sort of views on who the rock is that Jesus will build his church upon. I'll give you the short one. I, I think it's Peter uh, for various reasons. We can talk about that later. Others think it's Peter's confession of faith, and that Doctrine, that's the old Reform view, uh, Luther's view. And then others believe that Jesus is making a distinction and referring to himself as this bigger rock. But I think it refers to Peter here, that Jesus is going to use him to be instrumental in the founding of his church. Jesus will build it, but one of the critical foundational stones is Peter. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So that's Jesus' response here. The conversation here is at a high point, I would say. Peter's great confession, Jesus' commendation to his faith. But then it begins to turn. We can go back to Mark chapter 8. He warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now again, for us, that sounds normal, right? That's what Jesus is supposed to do. But not so for them, not so especially for Peter. Peter's understanding of the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, at this point, is different than Jesus' himself. Peter is expecting the kingdom, and rightly so. The abundance of material in the prophets And the sort of prophetic calendar that he lived in shouted, the kingdom is going to come now, right? That sort of fourth kingdom of Daniel. It's got to be here soon. Where is it? I believe the king is here. The kingdom must be right on his heels. And now Jesus is saying, I'm going to suffer many things, be rejected by the nation, the elders, chief priests, and the scribes. Scribes, and I'll be killed, and after three days rise again. Verse 32 says, he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I wonder what this exchange was like. You know, they argued. Peter got agitated. This changes the whole tenor of the conversation. Verse 33, it says, but turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Get behind me, Satan. What a drastic, drastic change. I think the only reason that Jesus would have said this drastic of a statement is either because, number one, Satan was actually using Peter to tempt him, right? There's this theme of not going to the cross that comes up later on in the Gospels. But I think more so, Jesus refers to Peter this way because. But Peter's thinking is so utterly contrary to his mission that he has to fulfill in giving up his life that, as Jesus says, he's not even thinking the way God thinks. You are not setting your mind on God's interests but man's. Get behind me, Satan. I think there's something important to consider in verse 33. It says, but turning around and seeing his disciples. Right? Then Jesus says this to Peter. He rebuked Peter. I think he wants to make sure that none of the other disciples have the wrong impression either. They have got to get this right. That he is going to the cross. They have got to get this right. The expectation, Their expectations of the kingdom coming now are not going to be fulfilled now in his first coming. They will be in the future in a second, but not, not yet. I'm going to be rejected, killed, and rise again. Peter's rebuke, Lord, what are you talking about? After all that we've been through, after all that I've seen, all the power, the kingdom is coming. What are you talking about? Get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about God's things. Now Jesus summons everyone to listen. So the reason I walk through that part of the passage is because what Jesus says now in the core of our message for this morning comes in response to that dialogue. Not only does he want his disciples to know, but he also summons the crowd. So these um, these other followers, disciples that are sort of on the fringes with his disciples. And he said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me or anyone wishes to follow me. Right. That refers to them all that are there. Right. Any one of you are signing up for this. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Right? That statement now has a context in light of their discussion and dialogue. He's stating the matter plainly. Here's what I'm going to do. And by the way, anybody else out there, you're going to have to do the same. Including you, Peter. You're going to have to do the same. So now we're at our text. We have the, the crowds there. The disciples are listening. And Jesus gives them this unforgettable Statement. He of the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to follow after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, I have to admit that I read this passage for a lot of years, and I didn't know what it meant. It's kind of ambiguous, right? Take up my cross, that's obviously a metaphor, right? What does it mean that I must deny myself? You know, in our normal usage in our English language, when we say "deny myself something," we mean like chocolate cake when I'm on a diet, right? I mean, that's just there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But I I I think that maybe that's how we read the phrase. He must deny himself. Deny myself what? There's no object there, right? Or it looks like there's no object there. Deny myself what? Is is Jesus calling every disciple then to just Learn to say no, right? Like, just have a pattern that you learn to say no to a whole variety of things, you know, in the world. I mean, there's biblical warrant for that to some degree. Then take up his cross and follow me. What does this mean? Well, I think the key understanding comes in this word deny, deny. So I'm studying the passage, doing some research. I came across this truth that I think unlocks the passage. It's in this verb, deny. It doesn't mean deny the way we think of it, of not eating chocolate cake. One writer here, Archie France, in his commentary on Marx, says this. This verb is particularly associated with Peter's eventual denial, not of himself, but of his master. In that context, it means to dissociate oneself completely from someone to sever the relationship. That was key. There is an object to this phrase. The object of the verb is himself. The thought here is not denying yourself something. The thought here is denying yourself. Not in not letting yourself have yourself, but in the sense in which Peter denied Christ. This verb is used... Uh, about eight times in the New Testament, only in two contexts. In all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's used in this event, and then it's used in Peter's denial. That's it. That's it. That's what it means. If you'd like an illustration of what the verb means, if you like to see it played out in action, it's Peter's denial of Christ. Let me read it again. In that context, it means to dissociate oneself completely from someone to sever the relationship. And he goes on. What Jesus calls for here is thus a radical abandonment of one's own identity and self determination, and a call to join the march to the place of execution uh, follows appropriately from this. Such self denial, quote, is on a different level altogether from giving up chocolates for Lent. It is not the denial of something to the self, but the denial of the self itself. This gets to the root of sin. This gets to the root of sin. And I think what Jesus is doing here in this call is saying, he has already said to them, follow me, right? Repeatedly, follow me, follow me, follow me. But now here, on the heels of telling them about his cross, he is saying that following me includes this very thing, denying yourself. Can we say to our old self, I don't know the man, I don't know the man, I swear to you, I don't know the man. Depends on who you are, right? For the rich young ruler... That was, almost, that was an impossible thing. Almost, right? With God, all things are possible. But for someone like the sinful woman in Luke 7, easy. Easy. She comes to Jesus, weeping at His feet, washing His feet with her hair. She's broken over her sin. It's good news that she gets to say to her old self, I don't know the man. I don't know the man. We take up our cross and follow Christ obviously refers to following Him as selfless, sacrificial love for others. This is a huge demand, right? This is a huge demand. We think about that impulse in our hearts that causes us to still sin. We think about the selfish sort of root of A vengeful attitude, right? Maybe someone cuts us off while we're driving and we're just outraged. How dare they, right? Don't they know I have this right to this portion of the road at this time in the driving sequence? How dare they, right? Or for some indulgence and pleasure like alcohol or other addictive things. It's still there, this innate pulse. But to be a disciple of Christ means to deny that. Now what follows is some reasoning for that. If Jesus is going to summon us to follow him, really to die, right? To die to self, perhaps like in the life of Peter, to literally die for the cause of Christ, that is a high call. But he follows this with some reasoning. There are four fours in the preceding verses. Notice at the beginning of each one, verse 35, four. Whoever wishes, verse 36, for what does it profit? Verse 37, for what will a man give? And for whoever is ashamed. We call those, um, in Greek the word is gar. We call those explanatory gars, which is helpful because it, it highlights that Jesus is explaining or giving some reasoning behind this summon. In other words, we can think of it this way. This is a radical, radical call of discipleship, right? Utter commitment. He's calling us to exchange self-allegiance, which is so fundamental to all of us, and exchanging it for allegiance to him, even if that means to the death. Why is that reasonable? If it's reasonable, it'll be easier to do. So let's follow the Lord with some of his reasoning. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. I want to pause there. This passage for a long time in American evangelical history in the last sort of century, there's a great debate on whether passages like this were either related to salvation or just related to like deeper consecration with Christ. I think here it's both. But I want to to look at the details of this logic here to show you that this absolutely relates to faith in Christ and trusting Christ. All right? Whoever wishes or desires to save his life will lose it, he says. But in contrast, whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. I want you to notice that in both sides of that sentence, the goal is the same. The goal is the same. The goal is saving our life. See that? Whoever desires to save his life. This, this relates to that self-preservation, right? Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But he says, whoever loses it for my sake the Gospels will save it. The same result. This is an okay desire to live. <laughs> you know, I think life is of such a nature that we almost know intuitively that it, it should be eternal. I mean, every funeral, I think people intuitively know this isn't right. This doesn't work. This life should go on. It's not a wrong desire to want to see our life saved. The difference in the two halves of this verse, however, are the means by which we seek to save it. Whoever desires to save his life, that's me doing the saving, will lose it. Whatever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. The reason is because we are trusting Jesus to do the saving, right? For for the rich young ruler, his life was bound up in his wealth, his status, right? That was, in his mind, his, his security for life. And he could not let that go to follow Jesus, right? He is seeking to save his life. When Jesus calls him to sell everything he has and come follow him, that's where Jesus is asking him to lose his life for his sake and the Gospels. He can't do it. There's an issue of either trusting myself to save my life or entrusting it to Christ as I lose what I think is my life for his sake and the Gospels. He says, if you do that, You'll save it. You'll have the result intended, right? The difference is, am I trusting in Christ or am I trusting myself? I think that connects very clearly with saving faith. Very clearly with saving faith. And again, I think it touches on the application of do I have one foot in church, one foot in the world, right? Are all my priorities, my time, my efforts, my goals motivated for me to be building up that life and I love that I get a slice of God in the pie right I love that I get these benefits of like heaven and forgiveness and maybe I get a nice faithful wife and a nice nice obedient kids and I have you know really good salary and I've got all the pieces in place and I get the God portion and I'm good on all accounts right I just in light of this passage I don't think that works if Christ is first and blesses you with all those things, amen. You're like Job. That's fantastic. But there is this innate part of our hearts for self-allegiance that Jesus calls us to forsake here with full allegiance to Him, full trust in Him. The second two fours are two questions, you'll notice: verse 36 and 37. And they're a rhetorical questions, which means they have an obvious answer. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Obvious answers. What is the profit for a man to gain everything in the world and lose his soul? Obvious answer, none. Right? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Nothing. If We turn these into a statement of truth. What he's saying here is our soul, our life, Same word in Greek, our soul, our life is the most valuable thing that we have and we instinctively know it. And the reasoning here is therefore, okay, if in seeking to save your life, you gain the whole world, is that reasonable? Is it reasonable for you to stay there, gaining the whole world in your efforts to save your life, if it means that at the end, you lose it? That doesn't make any sense. And so again, the reasoning here from the Lord is, you deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. You lay down your life with me in the Gospels. It's better. It's a better deal. It's a better deal. You're not losing out in the end. You're gaining the very thing that you value the most, which is your life and your soul. And it makes sense that if I keep that, Uh, soul-saving to myself, I can't do that. I can't do that. You ask someone on their deathbed. As their health is fading and they can't do anything about it, if they feel confident that their soul is going to be good when they die. We know. We we don't know. It's it's part of that creatureliness that we have. It's when that self-allegiance betrays us. When we're in our 20s and we're strong and healthy and smart and vibrant, the future is ahead of us, we don't think about eternity. We have a lot of confidence that we can do the saving. But at the end of the day, it's, it's a fallacy. And then verse 38, the last four. Again, I think summoning us to this allegiance to Christ Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of Him when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. Why would we we be ashamed of Him and His words? I think because of that self-allegiance, self-protection. We see this motivating Peter in his denial of Christ. We're going to see that in the next next lesson. Peter's ashamed of Jesus and his words when he's in that courtyard. Peter's afraid that he might be on trial next to Jesus. Peter's afraid that he might get crucified as well. And so instead of embracing that, he bails on Christ to save his skin. What are the significant... I want to just ask two questions. What is the significance then of this passage for every disciple of Christ? Both those in the crowds and then also for us today and then second, what is the significance special for Peter in light of uh, these words? For us, I think it means that faith in Christ cannot be superficial but has to include this type of consideration of what it means to follow him. The, The kinds of the setting sins that we have or the the sins of our life before we come to faith in Christ all revolve around self and are we ready and are we willing as we embrace Christ at the same time to forsake those things, right? To forsake those things. That innate trust in ourselves, that innate allegiance to ourselves and prioritizing our lives and our desires being geared towards fulfilling that self-allegiance Are we willing to let it go as we follow Christ? Are we willing to take up his cross and follow him? Because for us to be associated with Christ is greater than anything we leave behind. Is that part of our faith? Is that part of our faith? I think that's part of initial conversion. Sometimes we don't understand it fully when we're first saved, right? Some of the examples given, though, in the Gospels, like Matthew's leaving and following Christ, the woman in Luke 7, we think eventually of Nicodemus' faith and what that would have cost him. It involved that kind of understanding of Christ, even in kernel form. But even as we grow as believers, I can't come to this passage and feel convicted, right? Because I still sin. And there are layers of sin that God is still revealing to me. And all of them are rooted in that pride, and that selfishness. Am I following Christ? As I follow Christ, am I willing to go deeper in forsaking myself, taking up my cross, and following Him? In Luke's version of his account, it says, He must deny Himself, take up His cross daily, and follow me. Do I do that as a husband? Daily? Or as a wife? Or as a parent, or as, a, as an employee, or as a church member, for my neighbor, for my enemy. These words don't lose their effect, I think, because the depth of what Christ demonstrated for us what he did, where he went. And how he accomplished his mission. Peter refers to this, I think, concept later on in 1 Peter 2. If you want to turn there, we talked about how the epistles of Peter, I think, reflect this same progress in his spiritual life as he grew in his faith. 1 Peter 2.21. And in the context here, he's calling Christians to be submissive. Submissive to the governing authorities first. 1 Peter 2 13 through 17. Then, employees are servants to their masters or employers, verses 18 through 20. Then, later in chapter 3, to wives, be submissive to your own husbands. Then, even linked in verse 7, husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. So, this attitude of humility and submission and placing ourselves under others, this is what Peter's talking about. But the center of this is Jesus' example. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to do what? He says, to follow. To follow in his steps. To follow. If anyone wishes to follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Peter says, You have been called for this purpose since Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. To follow in his steps. This is the kind of thing that it means for believers. What's the significance for Peter in this passage? It's huge. We're going to see more uh, later this evening. Peter's understanding of Christ's mission in his first coming continues to be hazy. As well as some of the other disciples. They, They just can't fathom what is coming with the cross. And in fact, their anticipation of the kingdom and their desire to be involved in positions of authority in the kingdom uh, lead to uh, some confrontation that they have with Christ and I think contributes in some way to Peter's uh, uh, being adamant that he would never deny Christ and then just that very day doing, doing that very thing. For Peter, I think he would look back on this event and these words of Christ and I think he would make the connection about this denying. He would have a vivid, vivid understanding of what Jesus is talking about. Having denied Christ himself, felt the pressure there, adamantly denying his association with Christ. I think Peter himself specifically would understand what Christ is calling for here of each disciple and for him as well and for him. Well, let's pray. And I hope that the Lord uses this to challenge you uh, this morning with the call to follow him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these words. And what I pray that they would stay in our minds as a clear and startling call to deeper discipleship with you. Lord, all of us has this innate impulse still in our flesh to live for self, to think of the world as revolving around us, to make priorities, to satisfy ourselves and to fulfill our selfish desires. And Lord, you you were never that way. Uh, You lived the total opposite, giving yourself completely for others. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the cross and for calling us to faith. And we do want to live for you. Lord, I pray that you'd help us in practical ways, and tangible ways, to learn to deny ourselves and to take up our cross, to sacrificially give to others so that we might follow you and be considered to be clear followers of you and your example. I thank you, Lord, for this time with these brothers and sisters in your name. Amen.